0: I am so happy to be here. I'm a huge fan of the Claire Booth Luce Institute, and I love getting the opportunity to speak to conservative women from across the country. Um, it took me a long time to discover what a great country we have. Um, it took me actually many years of living in Hungary and living in former, co- formerly communist country to really appreciate what we have. So the fact that you all recognize this already um, means you're really blessed and fortunate and smart. And anything I can do to support you, I will do. Um, So I have come to feel and believe and to know that at my age now, the most important thing that I can do is to defend the American idea. And I wanna just um, tell a couple stories about why I came to that belief. So I'm gonna start with um, uh, the last couple of years, what happened, so um, I lived in Hungary for 12 years with my husband, which was great, and we came back here in 2008, we had a business, and when this election cycle came around, we both decided that we needed to support um, whatever candidate was gonna be running against Hillary, uh, that it was just too important for our country uh, not to get involved. What I was looking for was somebody who would really support the Constitution and the rule of law and for whom the Constitution would be their touch point. So I initially supported Ted Cruz, and I joined Ted Cruz's team as a national security advisor. But when he dropped out, um, I had no trouble at all saying yes when the Trump team asked me to get involved. Um, And I, I have to say on that point, I think from, really almost from the first moment that Trump went into the White House, I recognize that he probably really is the president we need for this time. Um, It would have been lovely to have somebody who's really polite and well-behaved and um, controls their tweets, but you know, I think for this day and age, we needed a scrappy fighter in the White House, and I'm glad that's what we have. I don't think he would have accomplished half of what he has if he didn't have that personality. And I think the other really critical thing is, I don't think anybody else could have withstood the incredible barrage of calumny and attacks and undermining from the deep state as him, because he he believes so much in himself that he's not cowed by it. And I think that's really critical too. So I, I do really believe he's the man for the time. Um, but I, want, I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened in the early days, because um, it's relevant to my, my topic and the point that I want to make to you. Um, I don't know if you all know how transitions work, but uh, the US government provides office space to both the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate in the months before the election. Once it's known who is going to be um, each party's candidate, they're given office space, tech support, security to create transition teams, completely independent from the campaign. So um, I joined that transition team, we had an office on the seventh floor, Hillary's team was up on the 11th floor, and we spent several months working in order to be ready uh, to take power when the transition came. Because one of the reasons this is so important is if you think about this, if there's an attack on January 21st, The old president isn't gonna step in and say, here's how you handle it. You need to be ready. From the moment of noon on January 20th, the new team has to be ready for whatever happens, and so that preparation is incredibly important. So we served on transition team, both my husband and I served on the transition team for several months, Um, and we came up to January 19th, and it was time for the inaugural ball. So we decided, of course, we would go. It was a great celebration. And even though it's thousands of people crammed into huge uh, the huge space, I think it was the Verizon Center. Um, my husband was getting dressed, and he wears, my husband's family is Hungarian, and he has this traditional Hungarian suit called a boczkoy, which he got married, and he wore it to our wedding. It's really beautiful, black, um, it's what the old, Uh, Hungarian parliamentarians would wear Um, it's kind of got black frogging it's really it's a lovely lovely suit and he has this pin Um, it was a pin that was given to his father Um, my husband's father had been a political prisoner under the communists so he had fought against the communists in Hungary and went to prison as a 20 year old he was tortured Um, he was kept in solitary confinement for two years and he worked uh, down in a prison mine on the coal face until the age of 26. And eventually, um, Sebastian's father was recognized by his fellow Hungarians, and he was given this award. that's like a chivalrous order in Hungary called the Vites. And Sebastian's father was recognized for service to the Hungarian state. And when you join the Vites, you're given this beautiful pin. Uh, and Sebastian wore the pin in honor of his father. So we went to the inaugural dinner, um, the the inaugural ball, sorry. And toward the end of the ball, he was asked to go over. uh, Hannity was broadcasting from the ball and and he asked uh, Sebastian to come over. So they sat there and Sebastian's in his bodge with the pin. Well, the next day was inauguration um, and our lives changed in so many ways. So Sebastian was actually one of the very first people um, into the White House. He went in as an advisor to President Trump I was one of the first people into DHS. I was part of the Beachhead team, so I was one of the first about 40 people um, into DHS. And at the same time, the press, somebody in the press picked up on this little pin that my husband wear- had been wearing. And they started doing research and, and somebody started coming out and saying, oh, this is, um, this is an anti-Semitic organization, Nazi organization in Hungary. Sebastian Gorka is a Nazi. Um And we came under attack like nothing I've ever seen. Um, article after article after article, I think at one point we did a, Sebastian did a count. In the first three months, he had 400 attack articles written on him. It was this incredibly orchestrated attack. Now to be fair, there were others. So if you if I mean, if I mapped it out, I could tell you there were a number of, conservatives it seems to be the people who are really targeted were the really sort of committed conservatives and in some respects there were a number of them that were kind of picked off one by one but Sebastian was an easy target because of this pin um, now the good news is that the Jewish community got alarmed because their approach their 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 attitude toward this was if President Trump really has a you know, neo-Nazi, anti-Semite advising him, this is bad news for us. So they did their own research. There were massive um, uh, sort of investigative pieces written by places like the Jerusalem Post and and a few others. And what they found was, they found things that we didn't know. Like they actually found that Sebastian's father had helped his Jewish classmates during World War II to, to evade getting picked up by the police. So in the long run, it was, it, it came out almost in our favor, because Sebastian became something of a hero to the Jewish community. And all these lies were you know, proven to be what they were, lies. But there was an interesting turning point for me in all of this. It was an absolutely brutal experience. It's a terrible thing when your, my brothers and sisters called me up and say, is Sebastian really a Nazi anti-Semite? Um, and it was particularly uncomfortable. My m- one of my sisters in law is Jewish, and I mean, I just felt awful about all of this. It's it's a horrible thing. For, it was a horrible thing for our kids to go through. But there was an interesting moment for me. My husband's a, he's a fighter anyway, but I am not. I am a complete conflict avoider. It just I can't deal with conflict. I'm not good at it. But I had this pivotal moment that was a real turning point for me. I was. Leaving um, DHS one day DHS headquarters is up in northern DC right where American University is and I was leaving and I was talking to my daughter I have a daughter who's at Trinity College up in Hartford, Connecticut I was talking to her on my Bluetooth driving along chatting about our days and I said oh look I see there's a demonstration going on up at American University driving chatting and then I said oh my gosh They had to protest against your father. And as I got closer, I could see all the signs said, Gorka out of the White House. No Gorka. Gorka's a Nazi. It was, you know, and I had one of those moments, and this is how I imagine it is when people are about to die and your life flashes before you because it all went in super slow motion. I'm driving past and I'm seeing these signs and I'm thinking, what do I do? I gotta go home. I gotta get out of here. I can't go home, I can't avoid this. And I, so I said, I told Julia, I'll call you back. And I veered over, I parked my car and I decided I was gonna go talk to these people. I couldn't let this go. So I got out of my car and I was dressed up in my my nice lady work clothes. And I went over to this group. To be fair, it wasn't a huge group. It was maybe 15 to 20 kids with their signs. And I walked up to them and I said, hey, just want y'all to know I'm Sebastian Gorka's wife. And you could just see their faces just drop. Like this, I think this was the last thing they expected. And I said, I appreciate what y'all are doing, but you need to know that everything that you're pro- protesting against was proven to be wrong. Um, I said, the Jerusalem Post and a whole number of Jewish um, papers and organizations did research, and they proved it all wrong. So. What you're doing is really misguided. And they said, What about the pin? The pin. And I said, Let me tell you about the pin. That pin was a recognition for the fact that my father in law spent six years in prison to protest against communism. So the whole story about the pin is ridiculous. Y'all have a great day. Bye. And I left. Um, But it was a great, great turning point for me to have that moment. Nobody, I mean, They were nice enough, Um, they didn't attack me. I don't know if I changed anybody's minds, but the important thing is that I did what I thought was the right thing and what I thought was necessary, which was to stand up and to defend the truth. I wasn't just defending my husband, I was defending the truth, and I knew that this whole thing was being orchestrated from somewhere, and it's still going on, and you can see it now, for example, the latest victim is um, Fred Flights, wonderful guy with an incredible career who has been brought in recently as the chief of staff for the National Security Council. He's getting the Gorka treatment. Um, he texted us the other day. He said, now I know what it's like. Um, they're calling him a Nazi and an anti-Semite. I don't know why, they, I guess that's the sort of smear of the moment. Um, but one of the reasons I, I, I bring this up is because I want to tell you, I want to underscore both my own kind of personal experience in this journey and this notion of defending the, the, the American idea, but also because I know enough, because I've been studying this for a long time, I know enough and I want to share this with you so that you know this as well, it's not personal. This is the tactic of the left. It's been the tactic of the left for a long, long time. It has a long history. And I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about what some of that history is, because I don't think it's probably taught to you in school. And I'm sorry I don't have my slides. I brought really nice um, illustrations to help underscore this, but um, hopefully the story itself will will sink in a bit for you. So where this really starts is with the creation of the Soviet Union and the Bolshevik Revolution. I'm just going to tell three quick stories to illustrate um, what I'm trying to get at here. Did any of you um, in school ever, have any of you ever studied the anarchist movement in the United States? Yeah, a couple? Oh, good. Okay, So you know a little bit about it. No, that's great. Um, I'm glad it's not completely neglected. the anarchist movement was a very surprisingly powerful movement in the United States, um, and it—you know—it was people who believed in anarchy, throwing, overthrowing governments. But they were incredibly effective, uh, very destructive, very effective terrorists. Um, I think it's the only terrorist group to have assassinated a U.S. president, um, William McKinley. I hope I'm right about that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, a lot of bombings, a lot of attacks, very destructive group in, this, in our country in the early 1900s. Uh, anarchism was very popular, particularly amongst some of the immigrant groups. So there were two, let me, there's a story uh, going back to 1920 in Braintree, Massachusetts. So two men, this was a, um, outside of Boston, big area for shoe manufacturing at the time, used a lot of immigrant workers. Two men were carrying the payroll for one of the shoe companies in a metal box. And these two men were robbed and killed. Two Italian-born anarchists were accused of the crime, Sacco and Vanzetti. Hopefully the name's a little bit familiar for you. Uh, They were indicted, eventually found guilty, and they were executed. What's interesting about the story is not the crime itself, but what happened to these two men, and the way the story was treated. So the Soviet Union at that time, the Bolsheviks, really weren't interested in, I mean, A, they knew that they couldn't capture the United States and bring them under their wing, but they weren't even interested. The Bolsheviks were interested in going for the countries that were around Russia, but in order to do that, it was really important for them to paint the United States in a bad light. If you think of that beautiful uh, Emily Lazarus poem that's on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to to breathe free. The Bolsheviks wanted the huddled masses to be yearning for the Soviet Union, not yearning for the United States. So what they did was they decided they needed to paint the United States as racist, anti-immigrant and imperialist. They wanted the world's poor to dream of a future of communism, not capitalism. So they had to destroy America's appeal to the poor and downtrodden. So they found the perfect opportunity in the case of Sacco and Vanzetti. They orchestrated demonstrations around the world, communist parties and, and different communist groups, A lot of violence. There were a bomb. A bomb was set off in the American embassy in Paris. Um, Another one was intercepted at our consulate in Lisbon. Um, American consuls were threatened with death if Sacco and Vanzetti were executed. And again, if I could show you my pictures, I would have showed you um, demonstrations where thousands and thousands of people were showing up. It's a long and fascinating story. with uh, the one of the most fascinating things about it is the way some of the american artists and intellectuals um and and even judges were sort of co-opted into this belief that these men were being unfairly treated were they innocent it's actually still debated it's one of the most hotly contested cases that ever existed i think it's now believed that one of them for sure was guilty probably both but even now it's not entirely sure but what's important is not now for us for our purposes what's important is not whether they were innocent or guilty but this was a huge win for the Soviet Union on a battlefield that we didn't really realize existed you know in the United States I think we had no idea that this type of propaganda attack was going on against us I mean one of the one of the other sort of interesting I mean I, I look back on it now and I and I I try to figure out, did people realize what was going on? For example, people in in the US government, that they realized that this incredible campaign against the United States was being orchestrated by the communists around the world. Um, I haven't seen evidence of that. Um, One of the the sort of true but unfortunate facts about our history is we tend to engage in, in propaganda, public information, public diplomacy, we'll gear up the apparatus in times of war, but we always dismantle it at the end of the war. Um, and so if it's, if it's in between wars, we're, we haven't really been set up to, re- to both recognize or respond to those types of propaganda attacks. Um, another, a similar c- case to that was another big one that happened now, <clears throat> about 10 years later, uh, the case of the Scottsboro Boys Um, I'll tell you the story very briefly. March 25th, 1931. So it's the height of the Depression. Um, You all know from reading Grapes of Wrath and other books that um, the big thing was the boys' kids would hop on the trains and try to move one place to another, um, search for work, whatever. So there was a case where there were um, eight African-American boys and a group of white boys were on a train near Scottsboro, Alabama, and they got into a fight, they got into a scuffle, and the black boys won. So the white boys um, went and uh, complained to the, um, how do you call the the station master. So the station master wired ahead and said, arrest all the Negro boys on this train. Now at the same time, there were two girls on the train, and they were kind of tomboyish with their overalls, and they were hanging out with the black boys. And when when all the boys got picked up, when all the black boys got picked up by the police at the next station, these girls knew it would be look really bad for them that they'd been hanging out with these black boys, so they claimed that they had been raped. And so these boys were all arrested. Sorry, it was nine boys altogether. Um, These boys were all arrested. Uh, Eventually, um, so eight of the boys were, I think, over 18, one was 13. Four separate trials, all white juries, and all were condemned to death. They were all going to be executed. Well, you can believe the communists jumped on this as a perfect opportunity to again paint the United States as a racist, imperialist, you know, terrible country. They got in- incredibly involved. All different communist front organizations got involved. And one of the things they did was they persuaded the mother of one of the boys, Ada Wright, to visit Britain and Europe and um, raise funds there and organize demonstrations. So again, you had a little bit of the repeat of what had happened during the Sacco and Vanzetti case. You had these massive demonstrations against the United States going on the going on around the world. The United States was being painted as this terrible, bigoted place. Now, to be fair, it was a little bit true, right? This was this when when people look back on this case now, it was considered. Um, a, a really serious uh, sort of shortcoming of justice. And in fact, it was a pivotal case because it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that's when the su- Supreme Court mandated you could no longer have all white, journeys, uh, all white um, sorry, juries. So there, without a question, there was injustice in this case. The boys should never have been condemned. But what's again important for us is the way the Communist parties around the world, orchestrated by the Soviet Union, turned this into a propaganda war against the United States in order to paint us as a really evil, bad nation. This has gone on throughout time. in the 80s in particular, there was, there was um, in the 70s and 80s, there was a whole series of cases of where the Soviets produced lies and propaganda and stories, all kinds of crazy things. The story that the United States created AIDS. Uh, stories, they created forgeries, letters. There was one forgery they created where saying Jimmy Carter was uh, racist and wanted black people to die. And it's a really hard thing to fight against, right? This kind of disinformation, this dishonesty, these, these lies. And we can see it today. I mean, I, I just see extraordinary parallels between what various people are facing today, people in the Trump administration, what Sebastian and I were subjected to. It's a longstanding practice and tradition I want to just mention one other case, because I remember when I read about this one, I was so sort of, ca- I guess, captivated by it. I found it so interesting. This was um, in the book by David Horowitz and Peter Collier. I don't know if any of y'all have had a chance to read some of their books. Um, I, David, at least, and I think both of them were former communists and kind of saw the light and came around. Um, I found their book, particularly about the 60s, just so riveting. And David was a journalist, so he's a very good writer. His books are absolutely um, riveting and compelling and so interesting. And it was very eye opening for me particularly because I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. It was a terrible time. I think, I think the 70s was actually the single worst decade to be a child in the United States because everything was being dismantled, right? They were kind of discrediting the church. Marriage was falling apart. That's when it became like, okay to get divorced, people just need to be happy. Abortion became legal. It was just in every way a terrible time to grow up here. And reading Horowitz's and Collier's book really opened up my eyes to how so much of of the negative that was going on here was being shaped and influenced by communism and by the Soviet Union. I'll tell you just one story. Uh, Huey Newton, Um, he was a Black Panther. He had just left a party celebrating his uh, end of probation for a knifing incident. He was stopped by the police and within 10 minutes an officer was dead, shot five times. What was noteworthy about this incident was not so much that a member of the Black Panthers may have killed a police officer, because they were violent and they were not shy about their violence. But what's interesting about it is that the left, again, many Marxists, people shaped by Marxism, was that the left chose to take up his cause and turn it into another indictment of the United States. His radical leftist lawyers, Marxists, argued that even if Huey Newton had shot the officer, he was justified in doing so because he was a victim of an oppressive and racist system Eldridge Cleaver, another, um, another member of the Black Panthers, um, actually made a quote once later, years later, 1986. He admitted, he said, we Panthers would go out and ambush cops. But if we got caught, we would blame it on them and claim innocence. And Americans kind of fell for this. There was the, the argument was put out that these people were justified in the crimes they committed because of the way they'd been treated. In the end, Newton was only convicted of not manslaughter, Huey Newton, who would shot the cop. He was only convicted of manslaughter. And it was, in fact, white America that really bore the guilt for the murder. So I've given you three cases. Um, I've tried to give you really quickly in the short time I've ha- that I have three cases. Well, four if you count what happened to us. But a number of cases where You can see these tactics that are used. You have real people, real cases, real stories where there may or may not be some truths or there may or not be some injustice, but the important thing is these cases are taken and and used for political purposes, for propaganda purposes. And one of the, I think, really important lesson here is one of them is that it's not personal, right? This is a tactic, it's a strategy, and you can fight back against it. And I think it's it's without a question, I mean, I, I'm assuming, I'm imagining that some of you have even experienced some of this on your own college campuses for the fact that you're standing up for things like the right to life or the dignity of every human, these, any kind of conservative values, you're going to be attacked. I know I've heard, I haven't had the chance to hear any of you speak, but I've heard at previous um, Claire Booth Luce conferences, I've heard outrageous stories of things that have happened to some of the girls that have tried to stand up for conservative values, the lies that are told about them. You can fight back, and I wanted to just um, close by mentioning a few quick things that you can do to push back against this. I think the most important is you reveal it for what it is. So this goes on at the national level, this can go on at at the personal level. In the 1980s, when the Soviets were creating all these forgeries against the United States and and stories of disinformation and planting stories in foreign newspapers, a small group of Senate staffers created something that became the Active Measures Working Group. And they decided, just three guys, and I think they were all probably in about their 20s at the time, early 30s at most, they decided it was really important to reveal what the Soviet Union was doing, even though nobody else thought it was that important at the time. And they worked to show these forgeries for what they were. And eventually, this became sort of the bedrock. When when President Reagan finally came into power, their strategy became the bedrock of President Reagan's strategy to undermine the Soviet Union. It was incredibly important, the work that they did. You can do it today, too. Um, If you find that groups or individuals are going after you, try to get at the truth of who's funding them, who's behind them. Because I can tell you a lot of the attacks on the right are orchestrated and are funded by national groups or other groups. Try to get at the truth. Try to figure out who it is. Try to expose it for what it is. Sometimes that's enough is just to shed light on it, to shed light on the sort of deceptive nature of it. So reveal it for what it is, that's one. Two, provide a counter-narrative. And this is what I think we're all doing anyway. This is probably the easiest for us in our daily lives. We're telling what we see as the truth and that's super important. What I love is the fact that we're starting to do it now as a nation as well. So for a long time now, we have not even been engaged in this kind of conversation nationally. But under President Trump, a lot of interesting things are happening. Um, Al Al-Hura, Alhura Television, which probably most of you have never heard of. This is part of our Middle East broadcasting. This is US government funded broadcasting into the Middle East. I used to, before I went into DHS, I, I can't do, I'm not allowed to do media when I'm in DHS as a political appointee. But before I went into DHS, I used to do quite a bit of media. And I would be asked to come into Alhura. Uh, as to comment on various things, and it always kind of blew my mind that there I would be discussing events, and they would always try to create what they considered like a balanced panel. So it would be me talking with someone from the Muslim Brotherhood, talking with somebody else who you know potentially very anti-American, whatever. Why is the United States giving a voice? to people like that, it's ridiculous. One of the most infamous stories about what they did was they, they, they allowed the spokesperson for Hezbollah, terrorist organization, to speak for one hour. They gave him a whole hour of airtime. Well, this was one of the earliest appointments was they put um, a wonderful man in charge, um, a Cuban refugee named uh, Alberto Fernandez is in charge now of Alhura, and he's doing incredible things. Um, he was. I just had the. He's an old friend, but I just had the opportunity to hear him brief about this a couple of nights ago. The changes that he's implemented. He's having now people come and talk about classical liberal ideas, and it's not that everybody is a pro Trump, pro American speaker, but he's he's making sure that the right people are speaking and that they're talking about ideas that matter to people. Um, he said one of the shows that he's got is a woman who talks about the forbidden in Islam. I mean, this is something that people care about, right, that's in the Middle East. Um, it's, it's opening up that conversation and putting American ideas and putting classical liberal ideas out there. So that's the counter narrative. And, and then the other thing I'll just mention, because again, I think this is such a hopeful sign for us as a nation, um, We the other our, our major, our overarching public diplomacy institution is something called the BBG, the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Finally, we've just the, the, Trump has just announced the appointment of Michael Pack to be the new head of BBG. So up until now, it's been run by former Obama appointees who've been putting out incredible anti-American content on, on, through US broadcasting into the world. Uh, Michael Pack comes from the Claremont Institute, which many of you may know, great conservative. He did some documentaries with Steve Bannon this is just great news for us as a nation that we are finally going to be able to engage more actively in the counter-narrative globally but you can be doing it as well and i think it's critically important that we're all we're all engaging in that conversation and not staying silent and finally you can stand up to it i mean like my little story about um how I went up shaking like a leaf to these kids at American University. I mean, it's not often that we're given these opportunities to really confront the people who are going after us, but I would just encourage you to be brave, don't be afraid. I remember one of the, um, one of the most moving things I saw in the last year was a man um, whose daughter, this is a guy that I, I work with, and his daughter is at Stanford, and he sent me a little picture of her with two guys Sitting at a little table all by themselves with their pro-life sign on their table, and I thought it must take extraordinary bravery um, at a place like Stanford to stand up for your pro-life values. But to the extent that you can do it, I encourage you to do it. And then I just want to end by saying, um, be a happy warrior. You know, we are extraordinarily blessed. I know I make, I in some ways. This is a hard presentation to give because it sort of paints a very dark picture about how we're all under attack and our nation is under attack. But the bottom line is, in spite of all the efforts of the Soviet Union and China and Iran and North Korea and all our many enemies, we are still standing. We are still strong. And we as as conservatives have a supporter in the White House. It's an extraordinary day for us. Um, And I wanna end with a quote that I read just this morning on Twitter from Candace Owens, um, who I think is truly one of the happy warriors. She said, there are constant lies, untruths, and smears against my character, and yet I am the happiest I've ever been in my life. That is what freedom feels like. There's no offense that can corrode the joy of independence. Thank you. Um, so Margie Ross was here yesterday, and she talked to us about American exceptionalism. And so people on the left, like you were saying in your talk, they look back on history, and they say that America is still racist and sexist, and like they do what the communists did now. Um, and so I'm a history major, and I'm just wondering how we can highlight American victories and kind of change that narrative to show people that like, America is truly exceptional because of our, our foundations. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I love Margie. I mean, I think, you know, as head of Regnery, A, it's an extraordinary position for a woman to be in, and she's doing great work with the books that she's publishing, not just because she publishes my husband, but I love the books that she publishes. Um, And I think the point that you're making is more important than ever because we're neglecting history in our schools so much, and it's all become sort of the the history of victimhood, so I think you're absolutely I mean I, I all I can say is I mean you're you're hinting at the solution in itself which is highlight the history of victories. And I think that's that's super important and so the fact that you're going into history, I hope you become a professor. I hope you get into school, go into a university and start to push back on the narrative of the left because it's it's lies, it's unfair, it's untrue the way we have lifted people up throughout time is just, I think it's extraordinary. And, and we're always a flawed nation, and we will always be a flawed nation because humans are flawed, but I feel like we're always striving to be better. We learn from our mistakes. Um, but yes, the, the history has become so terribly distorted, and it's time for voices like ours to come out and set it straight. Thanks. Thank